Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-380. This is Chris, your host, and it is well into January, and I lied. I ran the Derry Road Race this weekend. I wasn't going to because Coach gets so mad at me when I race instead of following my training plan, but Derry coincided with a long training run, and I promised to actually run the training run on the dairy course and not race. And it, it went very well because 16 miles for me is actually almost exactly two hours and 15 minutes, which is the training run I had to run. And so it was great. It was a little wonky though doing, so he has me do this, these surge runs where every 20 minutes I drop three minutes of zone three, which is, you know, I pick it up a little bit. And so deep into this 60-mile race, I'd go buzzing by people and then, you know, then after three minutes, stop, and they would uh, kind of freak people out. But anyhow, I did really well. So today, we are talking with Lori, who has a wonderful, compelling story that I am grateful to be able to share with you. The audio quality of the interview was a bit poor, and I had to clean it up a lot. I had to take a lot of noise out. So you might notice a little hum and a little fade in places, but the story is great, and it should transcend the constraints of the medium. In section one, I'll talk about overlapping different types of training plans. In section two, I'll share, with permission, a response I wrote to a listener seeking advice on presentation skills. And my training is going fine. I'm starting my build-up to Boston. I'm building up that volume. It's less than three months away, so I'm sure I'll be getting into some longer and some more quality work in the coming weeks. And my 30-day diet reboot, I'm right at the end of it right now, and it went very well. I dropped about 10 pounds, and I'm still going, and I feel much fitter. And you don't realize how much a difference it makes until you get back to that race weight. You know, eating clean just makes everything easier. It makes your training easier, your racing easier, just makes life easier. I continue to put long hours in and commute into the city. 
And it's difficult to find time, and more importantly, it's difficult to find the space to write and record. And I hate pushing it to the weekend because I have other stuff to do on the weekend. It makes me feel rushed and less creative. But, you know, it is what it is. And like I said, I get up early and take the train in. And I usually do my workout, everything before 8 a.m. As And so as my volume starts to increase, this means probably getting out to the Charles River Path before 7 a.m., which is just when dawn is breaking in the city. And I'm doing better. I haven't forgotten anything or put any clothes on backwards <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Uh, Friday morning, I did my hill workout on the treadmill in the gym. And I'm still figuring out these treadmills. I can't figure out quite how to program them to do what I want. So I have to manually adjust the speed and the incline between reps. And it's tricky because you have to hold down the two buttons at the same time. So when I was transitioning into my third rep, the button got stuck on the incline and it went to 30% and wouldn't stop. And it kept cycling. So I had to jump off and reset the whole, the whole thing. Uh, that was a bit exciting. And I also discovered, because I overshot on coming out of the rep, I also discovered that these treadmills decline at least 3%, which I'll have to play with. That might come in handy in training for Boston. Remember, this is my 20th Boston. I know, right? I asked people in social media, said, what should I do to recognize this? And besides a lot of beer drinking suggestions... <laughs> One of the suggestions I really liked was to design a special shirt with 20 unicorns on it, like a unicorn party. That sounds like fun, right? So if anybody knows how to do that, you can uh, send me an email. So I was listening to an author speak this week about moments, and they were talking about how many of the iconic moments in our lives were actually created, were scripted, if you will, by someone. Think about it. Birthday celebrations have a script, right? Gifts and cakes and candles, graduations, weddings, funerals. All these events don't just happen. They are were designed for the social impact that they have. So the author talked about how the Olympic medal ceremony, how someone made that up. Somebody had to design that when it first started. And it's essentially a little story, a vignette designed for a purpose. And these vignettes create a message, a sticky emotional story that stays with us. And that's the purpose of that moment. So when you look at your daily life and the good people who share it with you, what are those moments? How can you write your own script? How can you make the vignette of hugging your child have the import of an Olympic medal ceremony? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right. Overlapping training plans. How do you figure out how to stack dissimilar endurance events? I'm in an interesting situation where I'm training for the Boston Marathon in April and then a 100-miler in July. And this isn't a unique situation. Most years I'm training for different events, and many times they overlap. So how do you overlap training cycles for different events? What kind of events are complementary? What types of events can be stacked into one 
training cycle. Let's start with triathlon. It wasn't long after renewing my running career that I came to understand that you can't just train hard for marathons all the time. Training for a road marathon for me was very intense. It was always up in the air as to whether I would be able to avoid injury, major injury, during a training cycle. If I managed to survive one cycle, stacking another one on top of it, ad infinitum, was guaranteed. A guaranteed recipe for injury. And that's what I learned to break the year into seasons. There's a spring season that starts around the holidays and culminates with the Boston Marathon. There's a fall season that ends in a targeted qualifying race in October or November. And in between these seasons, I could rest and recover, cross-train. The challenge I had was if I gave myself those four to eight weeks to recover, I would totally lose my conditioning and have to start the next cycle from scratch. I would train like hell for three or four months, race or get injured, and then get out of shape, rinse and repeat. And it was, ironically, injuries that brought me to triathlon. I couldn't run for some reason. Some, something was broken and I needed to stay in shape. So I started swimming and biking. And at first I was terrible at swimming, but it was something new to learn and I learned a lot. Now, triathlon training is incredibly complementary to road running and racing. Of course, one of the events in triathlon is running, but you really aren't running that much. In a typical marathon plan at that point in my life, I might be training six, seven days a week, getting up to 50 plus miles a week. In a triathlon plan, I'd only be running two or maybe three times a week. So you can see right off the bat, Triathlon training is balanced between the three disciplines. You maintain your fitness in running and build fitness with the swimming and the biking. The biking does overlap with the running because, hey, it uses your legs, but it uses them in a different way. It's not weight-bearing. You can sequence the workout so that one discipline is the recovery workout for a hard effort in the other. And you can also do more hard efforts in a row. You can do a monster pool workout one day and a hard bike the next. You're using totally different muscles. You can do a hard run workout and recover with a low effort bike workout. And the net result is that you maintain your fitness from the volume of the work. You get stronger from the cross training and you refresh your brain by thinking about something new. Transitioning into a triathlon cycle from a running cycle takes a few weeks because you have to reteach your swimming and your biking muscles. Transitioning out of a triathlon cycle into a running cycle is extremely complimentary. You're already strong, healthy, fit, and you can start loading that volume and quality right onto that base. So let's talk about another transition, another overlap, which is short speed versus a marathon. So what about moving from a marathon training cycle into a shorter race goal, like a 5K? Most people know how to go from a shorter race to a longer race. It's just more volume, right? But how do you go the other way? If you're coming out of a marathon cycle, you're going to have fitness and some speed, but it's not 5K racing speed. It's more like tempo speed. And of course, I'm assuming you've been training well for your marathon, training hard to race for a good time. 
This advice and these observations are probably less applicable if you're just training to finish it versus training to race it. But in either case, you'll be carrying that fitness earned during the one training cycle into the next training cycle. But honestly, I think this type of transition is probably the least complimentary of all the transitions I'm going to talk about. And one challenge with rolling out of a marathon into a shorter race distance is that you still need to recover. You need to give yourself a couple weeks to get your legs back. If you don't recover, you won't get the benefit of the new training protocol. And you'll be going from hard running to hard running. And this makes the chance of injury, overtraining, and pure exhaustion higher. Then you need to find some strength and speed. You'll do this through speed work and core strength. And you're asking your legs to do something fundamentally different. Your 5K race pace might be one or two minutes a mile faster than your marathon race pace. You have to relearn those mechanics, and it takes a few weeks. My experience is that other than the pure fitness carryover, you're almost restarting with a new training cycle. With recovery, training, and taper, you're probably looking at a couple months to do it right to benefit from that. So what about marathon versus ultra? What about going from a marathon to an ultra or from an ultra to a marathon? So this scenario is not dissimilar from the 5K marathon discussion we just had. It's a difference of pace and intensity. The jump from a quality marathon training cycle to an ultra is not that hard. I have done this and I actually find it quite complimentary. One of the differences for me is that I'm typically not looking to race the ultra. I just want to finish. So the transition is from lots of intensity and volume to lots of easy volume. It's almost like recovery running for me. If you're in shape to race a marathon, running a slow 50K is a piece of cake. Running a slow 50 miler is going to take some training, but it's still within reach. Going from a marathon to 100 miles is going to take a couple months of prep. Coming back from the ultra to the marathon is similar to what we said about going from the marathon to the 5K. You bring that big fitness base, but you have to recover and then rediscover your speed. And this takes some time and some work. It's a different training and different mechanics. And another thing to remember is that most ultras, mostly are trail runs, or majority trails. And running trails is very complimentary if you're coming off a road race training cycle. Trails are softer, they're more forgiving, and they work your core. So what about cycling? What about cycling versus the marathon? So I can, can't really talk to road cycling, but I can talk to mountain biking. I have done a few seasons of mountain bike racing. So how complimentary is this to my marathon training goals? Coming off a hard marathon training plan into a mountain bike training plan is very complimentary. You bring that running fitness with you. You just have to get the feel for the bike back. Mountain biking is mostly slow grinds out in the trails. I do throw in some hill repeats and some road centuries just to make sure I have race fitness. But for the most part, it's just a lot of long rides in the woods. I have also found that going the other way from the mountain bike back to the road racing 
is very complimentary as well. You maintain that deep aerobic fitness from all those hours on the bike, and you have a nice strong core from working the trails, and your legs are fresh from staying off them for a couple weeks. It's very complimentary. So what about obstacle racing versus marathons? How about going from a marathon to a Spartan beast or something like that? Again, it's super complimentary. You bring that race fitness and, and then you add core strength to it. And I found that the one big advantage I had over the regulars was my ability to run in all conditions on all terrains for a very long time. Then coming back to the marathon was complimentary as well. I still had the base aerobic fitness from that six and a half hour beast, plus I had core strength. On top of that, to do well at an obstacle race, you need to be light, you need to be lean. And I was able to carry or not carry <laughs> that weight into my next target marathon. So very complimentary. Now, the question is, can you train for two events at the same time? Well, you can. But understand that you are naturally compromising performance in both events. The more complementary the events, the better, but there's always a trade-off. Which brings us back to the concept of seasons. If you look at the natural cadence of road racing, most of the good races are in the spring and the fall. And this leaves you with the winter and the summer to try something different. If that something different is complementary to your marathon training, all the better. My typical cycle, which keeps me injury-free, is to train hard for Boston in April and then train for something different for the end of the summer. And the good news is that most of your mountain bike races, your triathlons, and your ultras fall late in the summer. Then you can roll off that event and crank up your training for a couple of months to hit your fall race. You maintain your fitness, you get some cross training, some recovery, and it clears your head too. And now for today's featured interview. All right, so Lori, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. That's great. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Uh, we got on Facebook, as everybody does these days, right? Yes. It's, that's the thing. And I randomly joined a Facebook group that was people who are training for the Boston Marathon, and I saw your story, so I wanted to talk to you about your story. So can you give me the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do? Yes. My name is Lori Riggles, and I am a teacher. I have been a fourth and a sixth grade teacher for 25 years. Brilliant. And you're a runner. Yes. Yeah. I have been a runner since I was 13 years old. So did you run in school? I did. Um, I was running in the mile um, for PE, and I realized that I loved it. I finished in the middle of the class, and the PE teacher noticed a gigantic smile on my face, and she said, you either need to join the track team or go run a marathon. And so I joined the track team and did marathons later. So you were a serious runner coming out of school and, and through the beginning of your life and your career. But uh, the reason we're talking today is because you have a interesting story where you had some challenges. So can you walk me through that, where you were, what happened, and then how you came out of that? Yes. I was actually training for the New York City Marathon, and 
I was running near my home. I live in Raymer, Alabama. I was off the road, and I was hit by a distracted driver going 60 miles an hour. I have no memory of the accident. I was unconscious for five days with little hope for recovery, and I suffered multiple fractures to my pelvis, my back, my wrist. I had extensive damage to my arm and countless fractures on the right side of my body. My body on on the right side basically had to be rebuilt. I also suffered a massive headwind. My head split open from my forehead all the way back to the back of my neck, and I underwent multiple surgeries to repair my body, pelvic reconstruction surgery, and just various different surgeries to repair the right side of my body. When I woke up, I was told that I had made it through. I'd, I'd been in a coma when I woke up for five days, which, as I mentioned, I had no memory of anything that happened. But I realized that I was in a wheelchair and going to be unable to walk, let alone run. I was sent from this point to rehab where I spent time with intensive physical, occupational, and cognitive therapy. And after weeks of that, I was sent home where I would be enduring home therapy, where the physical and occupational therapist would come to my home. And as I was being wheeled in to the, my home, a representative from the New York Roadrunners called, because my son had told them about my accident, and he called check on me, and it was at, at that point I decided that I wanted to run the New York Marathon, and you must realize at this point I am not able to walk and have no reason to believe that I'll be able to walk, so it was definitely a leap of faith to say this, and I talked with him, and I decided that if I was able to even crawl the marathon, I was going to complete the New York City Marathon 2016. Wow. And how, how much time did you have before the marathon? It was seven months. Seven months. When you got hit, you said you weren't even on the road? No. It was a distracted driver. He veered off the road and hit me off the road. Wow. That's amazing. And be, up to that point, were you uh, doing a couple of marathons a year sort of thing? No. I had competed in half marathons and 5Ks, and this was going to be my first marathon. Okay. I hear this actually a lot, or, or read it typically in stories like yours, where there's some point early in your recovery or early in your therapy where for some reason this switch flips in your head and they say, I'm going to do this event, whether it's the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon or whatever it is, there's some switch that flips. It's a very human thing. It's not the first time I've heard this. What do you think happened there? Why Why do people do that? <laughs> it is what happened, and I was being wheeled into my house, and I saw my, my treadmill that I had quite honestly complained about many times, and fear <laughs> filled my eyes that I would not be able to run on the treadmill anymore. And I looked down, and New York City was calling me, or that's, what it said, and so I picked it up, and it was at that moment I thought, I've got to get to that marathon and do it anyway. That's great. That's great. And, and in that case, it gives almost like an anchor for you and a, a goal 
that, you know, in the true sense of a goal, but it's a big goal, right? And something for you to sort of focus your recovery on and hang your recovery on, right? And sort of pull you and drive you. Yes. And at that point, I had to relearn everything physically. I had to relearn how to write with a pencil because my hand had suffered so much from the accident that I was unable to write. So I had to relearn various different things. And I remember looking down at my shoe and it was untied. I was sitting in a wheelchair and I realized I couldn't tie my shoe. Wow. And I w- wasn't capable of it. And yeah. I thought, how on earth am I going to go back to running when I can't even tie my shoes? But that's where the occupational and physical therapy came in. And I worked on it very diligently. And when after I went through many things in my home, I was sent to outpatient and work ethic, persevering and never giving up was what got me through, which is interesting because that as a teacher, I teach my students that. Right. And it wasn't until then that I became aware of how important that was, that those skills were. So you're doing this rehab in your house in Alabama. Did, yes. the, did the people who were working with you think you were a bit crazy? They're, they're saying, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, you're going to go run a marathon, we sure, right? Sort of humoring you with that? Because it's not really a, a part of the country where distance running is as popular as it would be in Colorado or Boston or, or Oregon, right? They definitely thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And my brother, and he's actually a college professor that teaches, he said, you need to make some goals, and you need to work on those. He said, what are your goals? And I said, to run again and to run marathons. (laughs) He said, okay, well, that's what you need to do. And that's what I told um, each person that I worked with. And they thought I was, I guess you could say that they possibly did not believe that I, I could accomplish this. And many times I could not believe I could accomplish it, quite frankly. I mean, many times it was tempting to give up because it was overwhelming and it it was difficult to get through. There were so many physical obstacles that I had to work through. But I kept reminding myself if I pushed through those obstacles and saw those moments as something to overcome, it would be beneficial in my recovery. I made lists of what I was thankful for and I tried to focus on the positive and not the negative of what I was Enduring. Right. So because I'm sure you had setbacks along the way where you would say, by this date, I'm going to be able to do this, and then it didn't happen, and, you know, it throws you for a loop, and you have to deal with that as just another challenge to overcome, right? Yes. I also tried to focus on how far I had come and what I had accomplished. On those days when it was so difficult to do the exercises to strengthen my legs in order that I would be able to walk again, I would think, well, at this time I was laying in the hospital bed and I was in a coma. So I'm right here right now and I need to concentrate on that and improve every day. So were you able to chunk it up into smaller steps? If you equate your recovery process to a long race, you know how you do in a long race where you say, I'm not going to worry about the 26th mile, I'm going to worry about that next telephone pole. I'm going to worry about, right? Were you able to chunk yeah. up the recovery process to make it manageable, to wrap your head around it? Well, I'll be honest. My first, I remember the day that I ran my first 200 meters. And in track, when I was in high school, I ran 200 meter hurdles. And so I knew the distance well, but 
that, that first 200 meter hurdles, and this was after I learned how to walk again, and I was given permission with the weight bearing of the running again, I, the first 200 meters took an hour easily. Wow. It was very difficult, but I was so happy that I had done it. And I was so happy that I had learned to walk again because I had to be in, instructed on how to train my um, muscles properly so I could learn to walk again. And so I was very grateful for that, but it did seem overwhelming at times. And uh, to get to the, the punchline, did you end up running that uh, New York City Marathon in 2016? I did, and I ran it in less than six hours, which was my goal because I had worked very hard to get there, and I wanted to run it in less than six hours. And I remember pace and speed was so important to me previously, but I was just happy to have run the entire way and finished the marathon in less than six hours. Yeah, so you were you're running good portions of it, so that's good. That's great. So did you have folks with you? It must have been a giant celebration at the end. It must have been a big, uh, tearful uh, hug fest at the end when you crossed the line. In the park. It was. My family was there, and we were very emotional, and it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, it must have and, been. And then next came Boston. and So it, did you have to qualify for Boston? I was going to get to that because it was interesting because after I completed New York, I thought, I want to run a marathon on the anniversary one-year date of my accident. So I, I talked to my family about it. We decided that would be, it was, it was my spring break at school. And this was in November when I decided to do this. I was researching it, and the Boston Marathon was on the one-year anniversary of my accident. No way. 2016. Yeah, no way. And, of course, I would not qualify for Boston. And so I thought, this is impossible. I can't do this. But I reached out to the New York Roadrunners, and they ended up getting me a slot on Team for Kids to run Boston on the one-year anniversary of my accident. So you got a charity bib for 2017, yep. last year. Yes. Yeah. wasn't a bad day. A little warm for us Northeasterners, but probably okay for you. Well, and I thought about that. I thought, well, I guess I brought the Alabama weather with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So did you have a good time? Did you like it? Yes. It was amazing. And I remember specifically when I was in the middle of the marathon, my body started hurting. Just many parts that I had had been damaged from the accident. It seemed as if I feel every single injury that I had had at that point. And I was struggling at the halfway point. It's a 13-mile point. Yeah. I looked over, and I saw my daughter, who surprised me at she was there at that point and it helped me push through it i realized that once again i would be pushing through all the pain and what i had overcome and i remembered at that point the triumph the fact that i was running the boston marathon and a year ago i had not been able to even walk yet i was running and i remembered all the people who had prayed for me and all the many in the medical field who had helped me, worked with me, and all of the exercises that I had done, the hour-long, 200 meters, it became a triumph for me. It was it was amazing. Yeah, so even though you got to uh, the middle there, which would be where Natick, Framingham, Framingham, and that isn't even the hard part of the course yet. You're not at the hard part of the course there. 
having some uh, some pain, probably from the early downhills is why you were having those pains. You uh, turned that around and said, you know, you start to fall into that, oh, I'm feeling terrible runner mentality. But then you think about it and go, wait a second, a year ago I was in a coma. Right. right? <laughs> it's <laughs> so all what good. What am I complaining about? Yeah, it's all good. I, I get to deal with some achy legs. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And so did you finish well? Did you like the race? Like the hills I, at the end? I did. And I finished, I think it was 20 minutes faster than the, what I had run the New York City Marathon in. And like I said, the speed and pace is always going to be a challenge for me or going to continue to be a challenge for me. But that's what I'm working on. And I was proud to have finished and run the whole way. Uh, what are you doing this year? You're running for charity again? I am. Um, I'm running for Catherine Switzer's team. Um, oh, team. It's, uh, what's, what's the name of her team? Team Fearless 261. Right, 261. Yep. I didn't see her last year, but she was somewhere a little bit behind me, somewhere in the in the crowd. Yeah, she's a great story. So good for you. What are your plans going forward? What are you going to do now? You got people bothering you to write a book or uh, do a documentary or anything? Go out on the public speaking circuit? I do want to. I have some tentative plans of doing all of those things, actually, because I feel like my story has helped people right. get through um, obstacles and physical challenges that they're going through. It's important to me to use my experience to help someone else. Right. And you were talking about it before a little bit. You alluded to this, and I was going to ask you to drill a little deeper on it, in that do you think through this process that you have pulled some people along in your wake, so to speak, in terms of the kids that you work with and your family and the people around you, do you think that you have created that positive pull in other people's lives by going through this? Do you see it in your kids at school? Do you see it in your friends and your family, right? Where you get that light bulb that goes off and says, I'm influencing other people just through my actions, right? I have, and I myself have just an intense feeling of gratitude that I've made it through what I have and that I didn't give up. I feel like if you strive through your obstacles, you rely on your work ethic, that you can have a a positive outcome. And I feel that's important that I express that to other people to help them with their obstacles and their challenges in their life. Right. If you had to summarize it for people and had to say these are the the top three things I learned from this, what would you say those top three things are? Don't walk on the highway? Well, I guess that could definitely be one, but I would. Yeah, I'm kidding. But no, I, I too, and I think no matter how careful you are, because I was in bright pink, I was off the road, and I feel like no matter how careful you are, challenges are going to happen. Yeah. And the important thing is that you accept those challenges, and you do what you can to overcome them. Yep. I'll tell you a story. I was down one morning running in Atlanta in the morning, and uh, cars pulled off the road in front of me, right? So this, I was running with traffic on the sidewalk, big sidewalk in a neighborhood. And a car passed me, drifted off the road, over the sidewalk, took out a mailbox, and then drifted back onto the road and just kept going. And I'm thinking to myself, if I had been on that sidewalk 10 feet off the road, I never would have saw that guy come. So similar to your uh, to your story, people just don't pay attention. you got to be careful. But there's only so much you can do. Don't let it rule your life, right? Right. I also have a very strong feeling of gratitude 
just for the people who helped me in my recovery, what actually what I have been through, because it has made me realize that I had the strength that I did not realize that I had. Right. This is part of the challenge of distance running to begin with, right, is it teaches you things about how deep you can go, teaches you things about yourself and how strong you are. And in your case, that's just amplified a thousand percent and having to recover from this horrific uh, accident, right? Yes. And gratitude is such a key point. People miss the power of gratitude. Having that gratitude has been, there's a bunch of studies right now that show it has the same positive mental impact on your brain and the way you think as meditation does, right? It has that same sort of, it adjusts your personality, so to speak, in a positive way. That's a key there. So what else have you learned? I think it's important to point out that even though I have not fully returned to my pre-accident state, what I feel should be the focus always is the positive improvements that have been made, that the difficult journey that I've traveled on to reach my goals for myself encourages others. That's great. Yeah. So you got any big plans going forward? I feel because I've worked so hard and... I've accomplished many goals. I feel that I should always focus on the positive and reach out to others as much as I can to help them through their challenges. Do you feel like this has opened up new doors for you in the sense that you, you know, what I always think is if I can do this, then what it sort of throws the shackles off, right? Where you say, if I can do this really hard thing, then what are some other things that I assumed I couldn't do that I really can do, right? Did it open up any of those boxes for you? It did, because consistency in bettering myself was so crucial to what I was experiencing that I realized if I can work toward these goals, I can work towards the other goals in my life. And sometimes life can throw adversity your way, and overcoming that may make a difference in someone else's life, and it may make a difference in your life, and that is what is important. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought in that you're facing a challenge. That challenge, even though you're the one facing it, is not just about you, because the way you handle that challenge is going to influence other people. That's a very interesting thought. I like that. I like that. Good. All right. So do you have any uh, links or anything you want to share with people? Do you have a charity or something? I do. and I'm... That's okay. You can email me stuff. I'll put it in the uh, show notes. But if any uh, anything you want to shout out to folks who might be listening, just go ahead. I want to thank everyone who is listening. I want to encourage everyone to push through their own obstacles and challenges because it is possible to make it through and triumph. That's great. That's a good closing statement. I am grateful that you took the time to talk to me today, Lori. I appreciate it. I think people get a lot of value out of this, and we can keep the ripples spreading in our pond and influence more people. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. All right. Thank you. And I'll All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, this one is a little bit long, but it's about storytelling, and it's a letter I wrote. I had some fun with it. I got a request for some advice from a listener, and I 
and I wrote it back. So here we go. It's called Storytelling. Dear person, (laughs) thank you for your letter. I truly appreciate the vote of confidence, and I'm guessing you're a runner as well as a priest in training. Reminds me of a scene from The Exorcist where the main character priest went down to the track to run intervals, but I digress. I feel a bit unqualified to be doling out advice to a man of the cloth, so forgive me, Father. I'll do my best. Which, of course, reminds me of one of my favorite Irish writers, James Joyce, who used to weave Catholic imagery into his prose. I would recommend Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Most people think of Ulysses when they think of Joyce, which ironically was banned in Boston, but that book, as well as Finnegan's Wake, is mostly impenetrable. But I digress again. You ask for advice on storytelling. There's really two parts to delightful storytelling. There is the construction of the story itself, or the story form, and then there is the delivery mechanism of that story. And I'll muse a bit on both here. How I came into storytelling was through business. I'm right on the borderline between introvert and extrovert. I was always a good writer, always had an ear for the music and the prose and the structure of the story, but I had to work very hard at the physical act of delivery. I learned storytelling to advance my career and to sell stuff. In this context, you could say I taught myself storytelling in service of at least two of the seven deadly sins, avaricia, which is avarice or greed, and suburbia, which is pride, hubris. But I digress again. Let's take the first part, the construction of the story. When I'm building a sales presentation or writing a race report, the first thing I do is assemble all the pieces. I write down in bullet form everything I know about the topic or event. I create an inventory. The importance slash power of this step is that you may not know the structure of the story yet, but you know stuff, and it's very helpful to get all this stuff out of your brain onto the paper. I have gotten to the point, or maybe my brain is just wired the right way, that once I lay out all the bits, I can see the patterns and the story starts to assemble in my mind's eye. One of the best ways to get stories to assemble is to do this inventory exercise and then go for a run without headphones. The happy chemicals of running will pop the story right out. If you can't see the structure in the content, another great tool is a mind map. This is where you take a big piece of paper and you put the inventoried ideas down in bubbles and then start connecting the bubbles until a pattern emerges. One thing that people get wrong is they try to find a place for every piece of inventory in the story script. That will make for a bloated story. You need to have a critical eye and kill off the things that don't add directly to the value of the story. Those things that don't support or only marginally support your theme. Give them the red pen treatment. Another way that I cheat the process is to look for the themes or events in the inventory that are super impactful. Then you use these as the kernels that you build your story around. I will talk more about this when I get into the delivery piece. These are those high-impact things that you need to position well in your story when you deliver it. These are the punchlines. For example, 
If I'm writing a race report, I'll look for that moment that has the highest emotional content. Like crashing through the finish line with blood streaming from your face. I'll position that in the front of the story because it gets your attention. And then the rest of the story is, how did we get to that point? You naturally have to, you want to pay attention at that point. Stories are very powerful. Stories are a very powerful way to deliver information and emotions. There is something primal about storytelling that, if done well, resonates with your audience. They can't help it. We are designed to love stories. There are a few common story structures that you will instantly recognize, and your audience will resonate with them. The first one you've probably heard of, is known as the hero's journey. We have a hero, typically an underdog or an everyman type. They have an overwhelming challenge. They get beat up and pushed around by the challenge. They find a mentor, they get advice, and they meet the challenge and triumph. Think of the original Star Wars movie, or Rocky, or Hoosiers. This is the trope of every sports movie ever made. In Hollywood, they also use the three-act play format. Very similar to every TV show, every cop show you've ever seen. The first act is exposition, where they set the scene and learn about the main characters. The second act is the challenge and the dramatic tension. Will they be successful? The third act is the resolution or the climax. Nine out of ten Hollywood movies and TV shows follow the three-act play format. Why? Because it's comforting and familiar to the audience. It resonates deep within us. We leave theaters smiling and happy. Think about movies where the director gets cute and throws in some left turn. How much that messes people up emotionally. But that's all academic. You can find plenty of books on the story form. One of my favorites on presentations is called Resonate by Nancy Duarte, who wrote some of Steve Jobs' speeches. It's more of a business book, but it's very good. It has lots of pretty pictures. Let's get more practical. When I construct a story, after I have laid out my inventory and decided on a form the first decision I have to make is what is the timeline I'm going to use. Most people default to a, a linear storytelling technique. First I did this, then I did that, then I did the next thing. In my humble opinion, that's super boring. I like to start with something interesting, like the bloody face above, or a compelling question like what is faith? Then I structure the timeline around that. The lesson here is start with the end in mind. Give your audience a taste of the good stuff to get them engaged early and then tease them along. In a longer story, I'll play with the timeline. I'll jump back and forth in the timeline, creating individual vignettes that each have their dramatic tension and then weave them back together like threads slowly converging into the climax at the end. This is what your great fiction novels do. One chapter will leave you hanging or questioning, only to be resolved into a different storyline or a different timeline later in the book. This makes the reveal very satisfying to the audience. 
and look for ways to build that dramatic tension, like in a three-act play, people will be interested if the result is unknown. They have to have stakes in the game. Another great question to ask when you're editing your story is, what are the stakes? You want the audience to be at risk and to get them to become emotionally invested in the result, in the resolution. So once I have my structure, I'll go back through and paint the pictures. What did I see? What details? What did I hear? What did I smell? What did I feel? Especially important, what emotions were at play? You want your audience to be in the shoes of the protagonist, to hear what they hear and see what they see and experience it like the hero experienced it. This way they're invested into the story. They're stepping into the story. So technically, technically, I use a lot of metaphors and similes. I use the rule of three. I try to use different and unexpected vocabulary. I use different length sentences to pace the action being described. And since I'm mostly writing for myself, I will throw in cute little literary references like I did above. And this is a product of the seventh deadly sin, vaingloria, or vainglory. All joking aside, much of this technique is in my head from being a lifelong reader. I see and hear the music of good prose just from being exposed to so much of it through my life. Read good books, and you will start to recognize the ghosts in the prose machines. The second part of this is practice. I try to write as much as I can. I enjoy the act of writing. I find it fulfilling. It makes me happy. Whether it is a race report or a blog post or a zombie story, I get a kick out of it. If you write consistently, you will get better at it. Not as work, but as play. Writing is play for me. Okay, so what about delivery? One of the biggest reasons that I started a podcast was to force myself to not only write consistently, but also practice my delivery. When you hear me on my podcast, I am reading. But I would humbly suggest that it doesn't sound like I'm reading a script, does it? Because I have learned to write for the ear, i.e. there is a certain cadence that supports the spoken word. The metaphors, the rule of three, the repetition of key phrases, the vocabulary, it all supports the reading. You can hear me metaphorically gleefully rubbing my hands together and licking my chops when I give myself a string of $10 words to enunciate, or a particularly interesting metaphor. You can hear me enjoying myself. And this is the music of the prose. Listen to the way I use volume and cadence and tonality, and emotional shaping. Listen to how my voice drops and my cadence slows as I approach that climax or lesson end point. I'm signaling the audience that what I'm saying is important and they should pay attention. Conversely, you can tell when I'm rushed and it just doesn't flow as well. All I'm doing is reading a script I wrote. More challenging is doing this live in front of an audience. When I present, I try to use all those same speaking techniques around cadence and tonality. And when I'm public speaking, I don't have a script. 
I have a mental outline. I will still write a script, but I will memorize only the major waypoints in the script. Public speaking is hard for people. It's hard for me, too. There are basic technical things that you need to master. Eye contact, body movement, unwords, all those cringeworthy things we've seen or done. This is the ante, the basic requirement. Organizations like Toastmasters are good for this basic stuff. I try to focus on connecting to the audience. I make sure whatever I'm talking about is in the context of what they care about. I try to avoid the me, me, me trap that most presentations fall into. Just like a race report, I try to start with that one nugget that they really care about and work backwards from there. The only way to get reasonably proficient at public speaking or storytelling is through practice. Practice, practice, practice. You may have to manufacture that stage time. You will have to be okay with being terrible the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth try. But you have to get those reps in. Embrace the failure as learning. Eventually, you will be good. And whenever I give a real speech, I follow a process. I inventory the topic or themes. I write a script. I read that script out loud two or three times and edit it down. I then reduce the script to major waypoints and practice live fire presenting it to an empty room. And I'll get as many practice runs on that script as I can. Why? Because if you can become comfortable with the material, then you can begin to put your energy into the good stuff, the cadence, the tone, the audience. And finally, study the craft of others. Just like reading Foster's wonderful prose, listening to great storytellers shows you how it's done. Listen to Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. It starts as a historical linear speech that he's done many times, but then he senses that he's losing the audience. He reads the audience and he switches into the I Have a Dream theme, and it's masterful public speaking. Watch TED Talks. Listen to the Moth podcast. Observe what they're doing. See the structure of the story under the delivery. Watch Steve Jobs present a new product. Watch a great mega church preacher give a sermon. They're all weaving from the same body of storytelling knowledge. Read, observe, practice, and try to connect to the joy that is inherent in a good story. When you can do that, when you can find that rich vein of joy, you will feel the force of the universe resonating in your heart. I hope that helps. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have worked your way from the coma of consciousness to the hard-fought glory of triumph through to the end of episode 4-380 of the Run Run Live podcast. Congratulations, we did it again. Nothing radically new coming up for me. I'll use this uh, dairy training run to, uh, to springboard my training, and I'll keep working hard every day to meet my goals and keep telling stories and try to keep smiling. It's pretty simple. 
I used to think life was complex and hard, but it ain't. You just keep picking them up, putting them down, and smile while you're doing it. Life will take care of itself. And I think Lori's message is a great one. We're not struggling and striving and overcoming just for ourselves. We are doing it for others. If we are doing it honestly, selflessly, and with gratitude, we are creating a clearing for others. We are creating a clearing in the forest of fear, of don't and can't, a clearing of can do, and a clearing of potential, and a clearing of possibility. This is the life of abundance. The more you give, the more you receive. And I'm going to keep it short today. I'm a bit tired, but I am grateful. Grateful for you. Grateful for the gifts I've been given. Grateful to have a curious and active mind. Grateful for the gift of physical capacity and grateful for my choice to use it. And like I said to Lori, studies show that this practice of gratefulness makes the same physical changes to your brain that meditation or prayer does. So who knows, maybe with my gratitude, maybe that'll create a positive ripple in the pond of the universal consciousness. And it's been a pleasure and a gift to talk to you today. What can you contribute? What can you be grateful for? Surely you have gifts that you can share with us. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. But I would humbly say... <laughs>